Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin. We are continuing to read at page 51 for this reading, which is Lecture 3rd. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Lecture 3rd Verse 13 And the word of the Lord came unto unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Verse 14 Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. Jeremiah begins now to address the people to whom he was sent as a prophet. He has hitherto spoken of his calling, that the authority of of his doctrine might be evident. And he spoke generally, but now he accommodates his teaching specially to the people. Hence he says that he had a vision and saw a boiling pot whose face was towards the north. By God asking, and the prophet answering, the design was to confirm the prediction. For if it had been only said that he saw a boiling pot, and if an explanation of the metaphor had been given, there would not have been so much force and weight in the narrative. But when God is set forth as being present, and explaining what the boiling pot signified, the prediction becomes more certain, and the prophet no doubt gave this narrative in order to show that God being as it were present, thereby proved himself to be the author of this prophecy. Now, the import of the whole is that the Chaldeans would come to overthrow the city Jerusalem to take away and abolish all the honor and dignity both of the kingdom and of the priesthood. This indeed had been previously announced by Isaiah as well as by the other prophets, but all their threatenings had been despised. While indeed Isaiah was living, the king of Babylon had secured the friendship of Hezekiah, and the Jews thought that his protection had been opportunely obtained against the Assyrians. But they did not consider that the hearts of men are ruled by the hand of God, and are turned as he pleases, nor did they consider that they had for many years provoked God, and that he was become their enemy. Since then all threatening had been despised and regarded with derision, Jeremiah came forth and declared that the northern nations would come 
the Assyrians as well as the Chaldeans. For we know that the one monarchy had been swallowed up by the other, and the Chaldeans ruled over the Assyrians, and thus it happened that the whole eastern empire, with the exception of the Medes and the Persians, had passed over to them, and with respect to Judea, they were, both, they were northward. northward. Hence the prophet says that he saw a boiling pot having its face towards the north. By the pot, many understood the king of Babylon, but they seemed not rightly to understand what the prophet says, and I could easily disprove their interpretation, but I, but I shall be satisfied with a simple statement of what is true, and the meaning will become evident as we proceed. The pot, then, as it will be presently seen more clearly, is the nation of the Jews. I say this now as I do not wish to heap together too many things. They are said to be like a boiling pot because the Lord, as it were, boiled them until they were reduced almost to nothing. But it is said also that the face of the pot was towards the north because there, as Jeremiah immediately explains, was the fire kindled. And the comparison is very apposite for when a pot is set on the fire, it boils on that side nearest the fire and all the scum passes over to the other side. Hence he says that it boiled, but so that its mouth was on the north side, for there was the fire, and there was the blowing. In short, God intended to show his prophet that the people were like flesh, which is cast into the pot, boiled, and afterwards burnt or reduced after a long time almost to nothing. The prophet saw the mouth or the face of the boiling pot, and on the side on which it boiled, it looked towards the north. Hence God the interpreter of the vision which he presented to his servant, answers and says, From the north shall break forth evil on all the inhabitants of the land, that is, of Judea. In these words, God declares that the fire was already kindled by the Chaldeans and the Assyrians, by which he would boil, as it were, his people like flesh, and at length wholly consume them, as it is commonly the case when the flesh remains in the pot, and the fire is continually burning, and blowing is also added, the flesh must necessarily be reduced to nothing when thus boiled or seethed. Footnote. Most agree with Calvin that the pot means the Jewish nation. So the learned Gadiker, uh in the A-S-S-A-N-N, Grotius Henry and Scott, there is some difference as to its face. The first of these authors, followed by the two last, thinks that the face means the front of the fire or the hearth, and therefore the front of the pot. This face or front was towards the north, signifying that the fuel and the blowing would be from that quarter, as it is afterwards stated. As to the metaphor, the pot or cauldron, see Ezekiel 11:37, 24, 3, and 5. The version of the Geneva Bible is, I see a seething pot looking out of the north, and the Chaldean army is regarded as the pot. And Blaney, following the marginal reading of our version, has given a similar rendering, and the face thereof is turned from the north. But non-English word is a preposition, and rendered often from before and before. See note on verse 8. And to, see that, and to say that its face was before the north means the same as towards the north, and this is the rendering of J-U-N-M-T-R-E-M 
and Piscator versus Aquilonem. Aquilonem. And footnote. And thus God testifies that the fire was already kindled in Chaldea and Assyria, which was not only to boil the Jews, but also reduce them to nothing. And then he expresses the same in other words, that evil would come from the north upon all the Jews. He shall hereafter see that there is presented here a brief summary of the truth which was committed to Jeremiah, at least it is a summary of one half of it, for God designed also to provide for his own elect, and he thus terrified them that they might be subdued and submit to him, and not that they might abandon themselves to despair. At the same time, this half of the prediction was that there was no hope of pardon, because the Jews had with extreme obstinacy provoked God's wrath, and had so abused his patience that their impiety could no longer be tolerated. Hence, what other prophets had denounced Jeremiah now confirms more strongly, and points it out, as it were, by the finger. It afterwards follows, verse 15, For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set every one at his throne, every one his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. This verse contains an explanation of the last, for God more clearly and more specifically expresses what he had before referred to, that the evil would come from the north. He says that he would be the sender of this evil, and speaks thus of it. Behold, I call all the families of the kingdoms of the north. The prediction would not have been so effectual had not this declaration been expressly added that the Chaldeans would come by the authority of God. For men are ever wont to ascribe to fortune whatever takes place. And we shall, we shall hereafter see in the book of Lamentations, Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, that the Jews were so besotted that in their, in their calamities they attributed to the events of fortune the destruction of the temple and city and the ruin of the kingdom. Hence God sharply expostulated them because they were so blind in a matter so clear and did not acknowledge his judgments. The prophet then, after having testified that the evil would come from the north, now adds that this evil would be by no means be by chance but through that war which the Chaldeans would bring on them, that God would be the chief commander who would gather soldiers from all parts and prepare an army to destroy the Jews. The prophet uses the word to cry. Behold, he says, I will cry to all the kindreds or families. Footnote. Perhaps the more literal rendering would be, I will call to or for. The version of Septuagint is non-English word, I will summon. Of Vitablus, invitabo, I will invite. Of Piscator, vocabo, I will call. And of Blaney, I will call for. Editor. And footnote. God employs various modes of speaking when he intends to teach us that all nations are in his hand and subject to his will so that he can excite wars whenever it pleases him. He says, Behold, I will hiss or whistle for the Egyptians, and he compares them sometimes to bees, Isaiah 5:26 or 7:18. Again, in another place, he says, Behold, I will blow with the trumpet, and assemble shall the Assyrians. 
All those modes of speaking are intended to show that though men make a great stir and disturb the whole world, yet God directs all things by his sovereign power, and that nothing takes place except under his guidance and authority. We then see that the prophet does not speak as an historian, nor does he simply predict what was to be, but also adds a doctrine or a great truth. It would have been a naked prediction only had he said, An evil shall break forth from the north. But he now, as I've already said, performs the office of a teacher, that his prediction might be useful, and says that God would be the chief commander in that war. Behold then, I will cry to all the families of the kingdoms of the north. Footnote. They are called families, say some, because kings are called fathers, but probable it is a mode of speaking retained from primitive times, as we find that those called families in Genesis 12.3 are called nations in Genesis 22.18. Editor. End footnote. There was then indeed but one monarchy, but as the self-confidence of the Jews was so great, and hence their Scottish, and hence their sottishness, sottishness, so that they dreaded no evil, God, in order to arouse them, says that he would assemble all the families of the kingdoms, and doubtless those belonged to many kingdoms whom God brought together against the Jews. A regard also was had to that vain confidence which the Jews entertained in thinking that the Egyptians would be ever ready to supply them with help. As then they were wont to set up the Egyptians as their shield, or even as a mountain, God here exposes their folly, that trusting in the Egyptians, they thought the whole Chaldean, they thought themselves sufficiently fortified against the power and arms of the whole Chaldean monarchy. For these reasons, then, he mentions the families, and then the kingdoms of the north. It follows, and they shall come and set each man, literally, his throne at the entrance of the gates. Footnote. The original word, non-English word, not only means a throne, but a seat. See 1 Samuel 1, 9, 4, 18, and 2 Kings 4.10, where it is rendered in our version a stool. Grotius renders it here Praetorium Castrensa, a camp tent. The throne is derived from the Septuagint. End footnote. The prophet here means that the power of the Chaldeans would be such that they would boldly pitch their tents before the gates, and not only so, but would also close up the smaller gates, for he mentions the doors, ostia, of the gates. Footnote. Literally, it is the opening of the gates. The preposition at is not in the original, and the word in some other places is found without it. The preposition non-English word is given by the Septuagint. This express, expressly recorded in chapter 39.3. The idea suggested by Adam Clark that they would sit as judges in the gates, as these were the courts of justice, is evidently not intended here, for they would also fix their tents or their seats by or on the walls and in all the cities of Judah. The latter per- portion of the verse may thus be rendered, and they shall come and set each his seat at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and on all its walls around and all the cities of Judah. The description betokens an entire possession of the whole land. Editor. End footnote. 
And by speaking of each of them, he meant the more sharply to touch the Jews, for they, relying on the help of Egypt, thought themselves capable of resisting, while yet the Chaldeans, who had conquered the Assyrians, would be irresistible. Hence he says that not only the army itself would encamp before the gates, but that each individual would fix himself there and set up his tent as in a place of safety. In short, God intimates that the Chaldeans and Assyrians would be victorious, that they would entirely rule and rest themselves as at their own homes, in the fields and before the gates of the city Jerusalem. These things are afterwards more distinctly expressed, and many circumstances are added. But God intended at first to announce this declaration, that the Jews might know that it would be all over with them. He then says, On its walls around and all the cities of on all of the cities of Judah. The prophet here declares that the whole country would be laid waste, as though he had said, The Jews in vain trust to their own resources and help from others, for God will fight against them. And as the Chaldeans and the Assyrians shall be armed by him, they shall be victorious, whatever force the Jews may oppose to them. It follows, verse 16, And I will utter my judgments against them touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burnt incense unto their gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. God now assigns the reason why he had resolved to deal so severely with the Jews. It was necessary to teach them two things. First, that the Chaldeans would not of themselves come upon them, but through God, who would gather and arm them. And secondly, that God would not act in a cruel manner, nor forget his covenant in becoming a rigid avenger, but that he would thus be angry because there was extreme iniquity in the Jews, so that it was needful to distress and wholly to break them down, as moderate corrections had availed nothing. God, then, after having testified that he would be the leader in that war, now explains the reasons why he would chastise the Jews, and shows that his conduct towards them could not be ascribed to cruelty, inasmuch as that they had provoked him by their impious superstition. Hence he says, I will speak my judgments with them. This is referred by many interpreters to the Chaldeans and Assyrians, as though God would prescribe to them what was to be decreed, as chief chief judges are wont to do to those who are under them. But this exposition is strained and confuted by what follows on account of their wickedness. What then is to speak judgments? It is done when God summons the wicked before his tribunal, and executes the office of a judge. And this mode of speaking is common in scripture, according to what we read at the end of this book, the king of Babylon spoke judgments with the king of Zedekiah. That is, he dealt judicially with him, as we commonly say. Footnote. The idea conveyed by the Septuagint is somehow somewhat different, and I believe that it is what the original words mean, non-English words, I will speak to them with judgment. The original literally is, and I will speak my judgments to them. That is, I will not speak words, but judgments. Or, I will not address them with words, but with actual judgments. Then, in the following words, the reason is assigned. The verse may be thus rendered, verse 16, And I will speak by my judgments to them, on account of all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me and have burnt incense to strange gods and have bowed down to the work of their own hands. 
it is better to retain the outward act as expressed by the last verb, bowed down, or more literally, bowed down themselves, as the verb is in the reflective mode, mood, than to adopt the abstract term worshipped. So the verb is rendered in the second commandment, Exodus 25, Deuteronomy 5, 9. The first line is rendered by Grotius, non-English words. I will declare to them my decrees. That is, by Jeremiah and others, I will speak my judgments against them. That is, by the prophets, by Henry, I will pass sentence upon them. By Delaney, I will pronounce my judgments against them. And Scott gives the same view. But Gadiker says, it seems rather to import an efficacious and actual degree that God would, in his own appointed time, pass upon them and put in execution by the Chaldeans. Hence he renders the phrase like Henry, I will pass sentence or give judgment upon them. Editor. End footnote. So now God declares that he would be the judge of the people, so though he, as though he had said that hitherto he had been silent, not that the sins of the people were not known, but because he had borne with them in order to try whether there was any hope of repentance. But he says now that he would become their judge, as he had found by long experience that they were past remedy. There is then to be understood a contrast between the forbearance of God, which he had long exercised while he dealt with the people, not as he might have justly done, but deferred his vengeance, and the time of vengeance which is now at hand. I will then speak my judgments with the Jews, that is, I will now ascend my tribunal, I have hitherto abstained from exercising my right, and waited for them to return to me, but as there is no return, and I see that they are men wholly irreclaimable, and their disposition is so depraved that they continually add evils to evils, I will now begin to undermine, undertake mine office, the office of a judge. But we must bear in mind, as I have already said, the design of God in this declaration, for it was his object to clear himself from every charge and from all calumnies, inasmuch as even the worst of men usually clamor against his judgments when he chastises them. Hence he, had, he presented before them his own judgments, as though he had said, they shall not be able to blame me for dealing with them in a severe and cruel manner, for however severe I may be, I shall, shall yet be an equitable judge. Hence he adds, on account of all their wickedness. He afterwards shows what kind of wickedness it was. They have forsaken me and burnt incense to strange gods. The Jews had indeed in various ways provoked his vengeance. But he mentions here one kind of wickedness because it was the very fountains of evils. They had departed from the law and the pure worship of God, and yet he mentions generally all wickedness. The word all is not here without meaning, on account of all their wickedness, for he intimates that they were not only in one way wicked, but that they had heaped together various sins. And then he adds, for they have forsaken me. Here God introduces their defection, for it may be, as we daily see, that one offends in this thing, and another in that, and each one for different causes may expose himself to God's judgment. But God shows here that the Jews were become so depraved that there was nothing sound or pure in them. Hence he charges them with all wickedness. And then he mentions their defection. They have forsaken me. As though he had said, they have wholly denied me. 
I say not that one is a thief, another an adulterer, and another a drunkard, but they are all they are all become apostates. They are all perjurers and violators of the covenant. Thus I am wholly forsaken by them, and they are in every respect alienated from me. We hence see how greatly the prophet enhances the guilt of his own nation. It is afterwards added, for the sake of illustration, that they burnt incense to strange gods. They had fallen away from God and joined themselves to idolatry. He also adds this, that they bowed down before the works of their own hands. The prophet divests the Jews of every excuse and more fully discovers their shame and baseness. They prostrated themselves before the works of their own hands. Whenever scripture uses these expressions, it intimates that there is extreme madness in those men who worship in the place of God not only the sun and the moon and other created things, but also the idols which they form for themselves. For how is it that they worship their own idols except that they have formed for them a nose and hands and ears? A log of wood no one worships, a piece of brass or of silver all disregard. No one thinks a stone to be of God, but when a thing is sculptured and artificially formed by the hand of man, miserable and blind idolaters immediately prostrate themselves. How is this? Because they have formed for their statues and pictures noses, eyes, and ears, hence they themselves have made gods. We now see the meaning of the prophet when he says that the Jews bow down before the works of their own hands. But I pass over such things as these lightly, as ye might be well informed on the subject generally. It now follows. Verse 17. Thou therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. God first bids his prophet to be the herald of the dreadful judgment which we have already noticed, for it was not his purpose to speak only as it were in a corner or secretly to Jeremiah, but he committed to him what he intended should be proclaimed audibly to the whole people. It hence follows, and thou. We therefore see that the prophet had been taught by the Lord, that he might confidently and boldly declare what we shall hereafter see. These things should not be connected that God would ascend I'm sorry, these things should then be connected, that that God would ascend his tribunal to execute the vengeance he had deferred, and also that Jeremiah would be the herald of that vengeance he was prepared to inflict. Thou then, an illative is to be added here, for the copulative is to be thus taken in this place. Thou then. It is as thou hast heard that I shall be now the avenger of the people's sins, and the time of the vengeance is at hand, and also as thou knowest that this has been told thee, that thou mightest warn them to render them more inexcusable, thou then gird thy loins. Footnote. This is correctly given, only the non-English word need not be rendered then or therefore. It is an instance of the nominative absolute or of the anticipative case. And thou gird thy loins, and arise and speak to them all that I shall command thee. And as for thee, by Blaney, is very tame and prosaic. The version of the Geneva Bible is, Thou therefore truss up thy loins. And End footnote. We see why God addressed his servant Jeremiah privately. It was that he might publicly exercise his office as a teacher. And hence we learn that all who are called to rule the church of God cannot be exempt from blame, 
unless they honestly and boldly proclaim <coughs> what has been committed to them. Hence Paul says that he was free from the blood of all men because he had from house to house and publicly declared whatever he had received from the Lord. Acts 20, 26, and 27. And he says in another place, Woe is to me if I preach not the gospel, for it has been committed to me. 1 Corinthians 9.16 God bids the prophet to gird his loins. This is to be understood of the kind of dress which the Orientals used and continue to use, for they wear long garments, and when they undertake any work or when they proceed on a journey, they gird themselves. Hence he says, gird thy loins. That is, undertake this expedition which I dissolve on thee, devolve on thee. At the same time, he requires activity so that the work might be expeditiously undertaken. Arise, he says, and speak to them whatsoever I shall command thee. In short, God intimates in these words that he was unwilling to proceed to extremes until he had still tried whether there was any hope of repentance as to the people. <coughs> He indeed knew that they were wholly irreclaimable, but he intended to discover more fully their perverseness in bidding Jeremiah in the last place to pronounce the extreme sentence of condemnation. <coughs> he now again repeats what he had before said, Fear not their face. And this exhortation was very needful, as Jeremiah undertook an office in no small degree disliked. For it was the same as though he was a herald to proclaim war in the name of God. As then Jeremiah had distinctly to declare that it was all over with the people, because their perverseness had been so great that God would no longer be entreated, it was a very hard message, not likely to be attended to, especially when we consider what great pride the Jews had. <coughs> they gloried in their holy descent, and also thought, as we shall hear hereafter see, that the temple was an impregnable fortress even against God himself. Since then their temper was so refractory, it was needful that the prophet should be more than once confirmed by God, so that he might boldly undertake his office. The exhortation is therefore repeated, Fear not before them. He afterward adds, Lest I make thee to fear. But the word, non-English word, <clears throat> means sometimes to fear and sometimes to break in pieces. Jerome perverts the meaning of the prophet by rendering the phrase, I shall never make thee to fear. <clears throat> it is indeed a godly truth that God would give courage to his prophet so as to render him invincible against his enemies, and doubtless he would exhort us in vain were he not to supply us with fortitude by his spirit. This is indeed true, but the word, non-English word, will not allow us to allow us thus to explain the passage. What then does God mean? We must either render the verb to break or to fear. The verb, non-English word, is transitive, and either meaning would be suitable. <clears throat> For God, after having bidden the prophet to be of a courageous and invincible mind, now adds, Take heed to them thyself. For if thou be timid, I will cause thee really to fear, or I will break thee down before them. <clears throat> he then intimates in these words that the prophet ought to be sufficiently fortified as he knew that it, he was sent by God and thus acted as if it, it were under the authority of the highest power 
and that he should not fear any mortal man. Footnote. It is true that the primary meaning of the verb here used is to be broken or to be broken down, to be broken in pieces. It is applied to the breaking of a bow and to the breaking down of images. 1 Samuel 2.4, Jeremiah 1.2 And to the breaking down of nations. Isaiah 8.9, Such is its meaning when applied to what is material and visible, but when applied to the mind or the spirit, it means to be dispirited, daunted, terrified, or dismayed. 2 Kings 19.26, Jeremiah 8.9 It is here first in the passive sense, and then in Hillsville, as in Job 31:34, and in Jeremiah, <coughs> be not dismayed at them, lest I cause thee to be dismayed before them, or be not terrified by them, lest I terrify thee before them. Blaney gives to the verb first its secondary meaning, and then its primary. Be not af- thou afraid of them, lest I should suffer thee to be crushed before them. How crushed before them? By whom? And to say that there is no threat included in the last line is singular, as words could hardly be framed to express it more distinctly. The Targum expresses the meaning of the first line, Restrain not thyself from rebuking them. Grotius renders the last line, non-English words, Lest I terrify thee before them, which seems to be its best rendering. Editor. End footnote. There is also to be understood here a threatening. See, if thou conductest thyself courageously, I shall be present with thee, and however formidable at the first view thy opponents may be, they shall not yet prevail. But if thou be timid and faint-hearted, I will render thee an object of contempt. Thou shalt not only be timid in heart, but I will make thee to be despised by all, so that thou shalt be contemptuously treated, for in that case thou wilt not be worthy that I should fight for thee and supply thee with any courage and power to put thine enemies to flight. Footnote. Cotton, the old translator, had rendered it very strikingly, if thou quailest, expressing the two words in one. End footnote. We hence see what this means. Fear not, lest I should make thee to fear. That is, be of a good courage, and of a ready mind, lest thou be justly exposed to shame, and fear them not, lest, they, lest thou shouldest really fear them, and lest they should even tear thee to pieces, and tread thee under their feet. For in case thou fearest them, thou wilt be unworthy of being supported by the strength of my spirit. This passage contains a useful doctrine, from which we learn that, that strength shall never be wanting of God's servants, while they derive courage from the conviction that God himself is the author of their calling and become thus magnanimous. For God will then supply them with strength and courage invincible, so as to render them formidable to the whole world. But if they may be hung, but if they be unhinged and timid and turn here and there and be influenced by the fear of men, God will render them base and contemptible and make them to tremble at the, last, at the least breath of air, and they shall be wholly broken down. And why? Because they are unworthy that God should help them, that he should stretch forth his hand and fortify them by his power, and supply them, as it has already been said, with that fortitude by which they might terrify both the devil and the whole world. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that as thou hast been once 
pleased to fortify thy servant Jeremiah with the invincible power of thy spirit. O grant that his doctrine may at this day make us humble, and that we may learn willingly to submit to thee, and so to receive and even cordially to accept what thou offerest to us by thy servant, to sustain us by thy hand, and that we, relying on the power and protection, may fight against the world and against Satan, while each of us, in his own vacation, own vocation, so recomes on on thy power, as not to hesitate, whenever necessary, to expose our very life to dangers. And may we manfully fight and preserve in our warfare to the end, until, having finished our course, we shall at at length come to that blessed rest which is reserved for us in heaven, through Christ our Lord. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival's books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or srwb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. (coughs) SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address and you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you've supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books, and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times, our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of this message, including the heading and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.